Well, good evening. It is good to see you all out this evening. As we uh, gather around the book of Ruth together, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there as we uh, dig into this. And as a kid, I remember uh, long before my parents moved to uh, the farm, which I'll get to in just a moment, long before they moved to a farm, we lived in a suburban area where I had to walk to school about a half a mile to a mile, depending on which route I took. And as a kid, I wasn't very ambitious to get to the school bus and get on to school. So I would take the longest route I could, which was about a mile. And it would take me out past these horse pastures that were alongside the road and the sharp barbed wire and the electric or the electrified portion of that on the top rung or the top wire was electrified. And I remember we would always as kids, you know, uh, young boys walking on the way to school, walking to the school bus, bored, trying to find something to distract themselves. We would always throw stuff against the electric fence to try to get it to spark. And one day I noticed as I was getting close, I had, because you have to ground it, right? You can't just throw something at it. You have to ground it in order to get the spark. Uh, any kids listening don't really pay attention right now, but uh, you, you actually have to try to get it to spark. And so I would try to connect it with either the next wire down and it would spark, or I would try to connect it down all the way to the ground to get that spark. And one day I happened to be walking up and I noticed that the horse that was in that pasture had stuck its head all the way, had ducked underneath the electrified portion and stuck its head through the two layers below it, two wires below it of barbed wire and it stuck all the way out. It was on its knees all the way out as far as it could reach to get the last little pieces of grass it could possibly reach, put in its mouth. Isn't it funny how the grass is greener on the other side of the fence? I remember then when my parents moved to the farm, and I've said before, and I'll say it again, we were terrible farmers. Uh, we couldn't farm. We could build. My dad's a builder, and we could build. That was what we were meant to do, and farming was not what we were meant to do. <laughs> and so we farmed for a little while, and uh, one of the things that we did was on our cornfields, every year we'd have sheep, and I've shared some of the stories about sheep. They would come down, and they would winter in the valleys, and one of the things that I noticed about the crazy sheep is that they would stick their heads. We had sheep wire instead of barbed wire. We had sheep wire, and so you had the little tiny squares in the fence. Those crazy sheep would stick their head all the way through that and push as, far, as hard as they could against the fence until the fence gave way. And then the whole flock was loose because the grass was greener on the other side of the fence. That is how we start the book of Ruth. The grass seems greener on the other side of the fence. And actually, we're not going to have the uh, projector. I'll just leave it on this one uh, this evening because the outline is different. But uh, we recognize that there is a challenge to each of us. We each have the same challenge. It appears to be better on the other side of the fence. I was actually asked last week at the end of the service, what do you say to somebody who tries something that's opposed to the will of God and it seems to succeed for them. How do you encourage them back to the things of the Lord? And how does Ruth help us do that? I thought that was a perceptive question. Because when you look at the book of Ruth, it would appear, especially in the first five verses, uh, first four verses of the book of Ruth, that it's better to push against the fence, to look at the greener grass on the other side. 
But we're going to learn by the time we get to the fifth verse of this book, that is not the case. We begin in uh, this truth. We're going to look in the first five verses. The grass does seem green. That's the title of our message this evening. And there's a compounding crisis. There's clouds building, and they're going to build. We're going to ask the Lord's blessing after I read the Word of God here in just a moment. But you see the storm clouds brewing as we come into the first verse of the first chapter of the book of Ruth, where the Scripture says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Melon and Shelon. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem of Judah. They, were to, or they, were in, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with just her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Melon and Shalon died, so that the, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Father, we study a book that is familiar to us. We've read it, most likely. We spent some time here in previous days, uh, some point in our Christian journey, most likely as well. Lord, we recognize that the challenges we face today are those that are deep and cutting. It is easy for us to look onto the other side of the fence and say, isn't the grass greener over there? We know that's what Elimelech does. He's in the dry and parched land outside of Bethlehem. And he looks across over to the other side of the Dead Sea and he sees the green plains of Moab. It's easy for us to look across and see the green on the other side. I pray, though, tonight that we would learn that it's necessary and it is good for us to obey. That we would be those who follow the example of faithful servants of yours rather than those like Elimelech who believed that they were following comfort and instead found themselves outside of the assembly of God and indeed outside of the land of Israel. Teach us what you will in this passage that is before us. Give me the words to speak that they would be from you, that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say here tonight. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen. So we get into the first, and in your notes and your bulletin, you'll notice we just have some bullet points, and that is because narratives are a bit different than moving through a passage like the epistles, as we've been studying in the morning. And so I try to leave you a little more space for you to fill in some of what the Lord is leading you uh, to understand in the text. So I'm giving you the highlights, and there's a number of them for us this evening. We're going to be looking into each one of these four. The first one is the compounding crisis. And again, this is a narrative. And some would say this is similar as we studied last week. This is a, like a fairy tale, once upon a time. But it is a true event. The events that unfold out through the book of Ruth are actual events that took place to actual people who were Israelites and who were Moabites. So these are real people going through real struggles at a very real and difficult time in history. And so even though the book starts out in those days, or in our imagination, we may say once upon a time, we recognize that these are events that are actual. There's nothing fanciful about these days. This is a true narrative, and it begins 
as many stories do, and many fairy tales do, it starts out with the storm clouds of the past kind of brewing in the distance. And that is where we begin in verse 1. We see this again when the judges, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. On the surface, this seems like innocence. There's what's wrong with sojourning in the land of Moab. The prophet Samuel wrote verse 1 and the rest of the book of Ruth, and in doing so, he begins to demonstrate to us the genuine crisis that drove Elimelech to leave Israel. And he tells us what it is. There's a famine in the land, and this was of the time and the period of the judges. There's a wordplay here. And that wordplay, while it is not obvious to us in English, would have stood out to the Hebrew mind immediately. They would immediately know of the storm clouds that are brewing. Let me give it to you again in English, and you're going to say, well, that doesn't make sense, and so I'll explain it. The wordplay is, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem. That's the wordplay. That doesn't make any sense. Well, it does, because the term Bethlehem means house of bread. So literally, there's a famine in the house of bread. The Jewish mind, the Hebrew mind would have said, wait, there's a famine where I get fed. That's storm clouds. And so immediately, Samuel gives to the Jewish audience an immediate draw into the text. There's a famine in the land, Bethlehem being the house of bread or the bread basket. So the phrase was, there's a famine in the house of bread or there's a famine in the bread basket. The events described here, especially as you understand the wordplay, the events described here likely are the events that are described in Judges chapter 6. And I mentioned that last week. This is of the time of Gideon. And at that time, we know that the Midianites, remember where Gideon is at when the Lord calls him to the work of being a judge. Gideon is in hiding, and he's at a wine press thrashing out grain. Well, that too doesn't make sense. Why would you be at a wine press thrashing out the grain? You want uh, to be at a place where you can thrash grain and toss it up into the air, and the shaft would blow off. Well, the wine presses, and if you travel to Israel with me someday, you'll see this, the wine presses are actually usually down in the valley where the vineyard would grow up on the hillside, and all of the uh, grapes would be hauled to the bottom of the valley, and down in the bottom of the valley is where you would actually uh, allow the grapes to be fermented and to be crushed. That was all at the bottom of the valley. Whereas the threshing floors were often near the top because you want the breezes to blow the shaft away. So as you're thrashing out the grain, you're tossing it into the air. The heavier grain falls to the floor. The shaft blows away. But Gideon is found thrashing grain at the wine press because the Midianites are raiding through Israel. And as they raid through Israel, they're looking in the distance for all the threshing floors and to see when the threshing gets done and they ride in and they haul off all the grain with them. So literally, the bread basket of Israel is empty. It's empty because of famine, because of drought, and it's empty because of the Midianites. 
that is a difficult challenge. So before we're too harsh on Elimelech, let us consider how we would handle such a crisis. We see these events beginning to unfold. And as the Midianites would regularly raid the harvest of the people of Israel, we recognize that the people of Israel would have been in a very serious condition. Now, in your mind's eye as well, think of standing in near Bethlehem, probably up on the hillside of Bethlehem, and looking across to the east of Bethlehem. And if you get over one little ridge, Bethlehem kind of sits down off the top of the hill. And if you get up to the top of the hill and you look straight east, you can see about 50 miles away on a clear day, you can see where the Dead Sea is located. And if you look past that, you look into the land of Moab. It is very easy, actually, on a clear day to see Moab from Bethlehem, from just above the town of Bethlehem. And so imagine Elimelech, and he is trying to gather all the harvest that he can possibly gather, and he is struggling, he and his two sons and his wife, and he looks out over and he sees the grassy plains of Moab. The Midianites aren't raiding there. And he says, this is where I'm going to go. But then comes the compromise. The man and his wife, and this is where we find the middle and end of verse 1, says, the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Here's the compromise, and it starts out slow, and then it begins to ratchet up. And we're going to see the escalation of language as we move through the text but notice that it starts out slow he is sojourning in the land of moab psalm 60 verse 8 refers to moab as the wash bowl moab is the wash bowl and literally it is the idea of the bowl that would sit as visitors and sojourners would enter into a house or a tent there would be a bowl of water there where you would Wash your feet. That's the bowl that is being discussed here. And other translations or other ways of defining this wash bowl would be trash can in our language. So the idea of a dirty, filthy bowl used to wash the, the feet of those who wore sandals in the hot desert dry sun and a trash can. Moab is referred to those in Psalm 60, verse 8. That's what Moab is referred to. And yet, Elimelech looks across the border and he sees that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And so he sojourns in that land. Throughout the book of Judges, and this is where we start to have the conflict. This is where a lot of the secondary storm clouds are rising. The first is you have famine. The second is that he's sojourning in another land that he doesn't belong in. And we're not told about that unless you know something of the law and the responsibility of Israel and staying in their land and keeping pure to their own people. You would say, there doesn't seem to be much problem. I mean, I just moved from Illinois to Michigan. There wasn't any problem there. What is the problem? Well, there is a significant problem. And throughout the book of Judges, God uses judgment to draw his people back to himself. They've wandered away, and they're wandering away from the things of the Lord and the word of God, and, 
and they are suffering because of that. There is famine in their land. By the way, that's not just an Old Testament. That's also in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, every month we take communion together and we're reminded of the church at Corinth that was taking the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And there were those who were sick and dying. So there is still God's judgment. It is maybe not in the same capacity as we see it in the Old Testament, but we certainly see it in the New. We also have the principle in Hebrews that reminds us that the Lord chastens those whom He loves. If you're experiencing the chastening of the Lord, praise God, God loves you. But fix the reason for the chastening. That's what Elimelech fails to do. Instead, like Jonah in our study before, he flees to another land. He goes to a land where he thinks that the grass is going to be greener. God often, one author says, God often uses physical famine to bring the nation to their sense of spiritual need. And God's plan would not have included people leaving the house of bread for greener pastures, but to repent and to obey His Word. That's what Elimelech should have done. Elimelech should have repented, led his homeland into repentance, and not longed for greener pastures. But as we see the storm clouds brewing and and we see this compounding crisis begin to rise, we also need to see in verse 2 the key players. We're introduced to six key players right off. We'll later add a seventh. That'll be Boaz that we're going to add. But notice the first of them. We find them in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech is the first one, and that is the patriarch of the family. Then you have his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Shalon. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. It's important. Oftentimes we see in Jewish names, we see some significance, something that stands out. And I'm going to draw a few of those out. First, Elimelech means God is my king. I'm going to ask you, from what you already know, we've already read through verse 5 and That is the full account of Elimelech in the book of Ruth. But did he live up to his name? No, he left. God is my king. I'm going to go live in another country. That's Elimelech. We also, we're going to study Naomi later, and so I'm not going to give the definition of her name now. We're not going to spend time on it. We're going to look at that later. But we also, it's interesting to me, the names of the two sons. This is fascinating to me because evidently Naomi had uh, looked up on the internet Hebrew names that rhyme. Uh, That's the only thing I could come up with because uh, you have these two Hebrew names that are rhyming and uh, Milan means, so Hebrew names typically mean something, Milan means puny or weakling. That's what it means. Can you imagine calling your son puny? That's what Milan means. Shalon means complaining or pining. So we've got puny and pining. Those are the names of the two sons. It's interesting to me that as the text moves on, I'm going to jump down to verse 4, we also have meanings for the names of their wives. Uh, 
verse 4 says, these two took, or these took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. In verse 4, the sons of Naomi would both get married, but they would do so against the law. Remember, they are not allowed to marry outside of Israel, and yet they're marrying Moabite women. So we have the compounding crisis that's building. We have a subtlety that is starting to slide. There is, we're going to sojourn in Moab. We're going to be there for some time, evidently, as we'll see as we move through the text. And then, oh yeah, we're, we're remaining there for 10 years. At the end of the 10 years, both sons have died, but both sons had taken on a wife. And uh, the wife's name, Orpha, means obstinate or literally stiff-necked. That's what her name means. Uh, so you have Puny marrying stiff-necked. Milan, Mr. Puny, marries Mrs. Stiff-necked. And then you have Ruth. And her name means comforter or friend. Ruth is the only one in the names that I've given you today that lives up to her name. Now, the others may have lived up to their name. I don't, I don't know, but it wasn't positive. <laughs> it was in the negative sense that they would have lived up to their names. There's also another name that we get here early on as we're introducing ourselves to the main characters. And this is fascinating to me as well. The... Ephrodites of Bethlehem in Ruth 1-2, which we saw just a moment ago, are of the line of Ephrath, who is the wife of, of Caleb. So they're, they're those who are Calebites. They're the ones who settle Bethlehem, and they, they are ones who come from the line and lineage of the fearless and faithful colleague of Joshua that we studied in the book of Joshua. So this is not, uh, this is an important distinction as well, because these are not uh, wimpy people. These are people whose line has been uh, fearsome warriors. And according to 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 19, they're the ones who settle in the Bethlehem area. And so we know that this is a line, a powerful line, and an important line of those who came from Judah. And the Ephraites were members of a clan that had held prominent positions of being one of the first families of Israel. So they were not the lowly individuals. They were the, from the aristocracy of Israel, the wealthy side of Israel. They simply, this truth simply underscores the riches to rags hitting this particular family crisis. They had gone from the highest echelons in Jewish culture to rags. It reinforces Elimelech's concern, but it also reveals the wealth that this family likely had over those who truly were impoverished and could not make it over to Moab, could not leave Israel. And that's going to cause us to begin to recognize some of the truths that begin to be developed in our third point when we understand comforts cause compromise in Elimelech's life. Comforts cause compromise. This is... One of the challenges I think we in our first world churches struggle with as Christians in our first world, 
we like our comforts. And sometimes those comforts will be held on to with a clenched fist, even if that means compromise. Notice in verse 2, how when we come to the end of verse 2, we understand who they were, and the very last sentence of verse 2, it says, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Are you beginning to see the escalation of language? Go back to verse 1. The very end of verse 1, it says that there was a man of Bethlehem and Judah who sojourned in the country of Moab. So here's Elimelech. He packs up his family, he puts them all on the camels, and they go for the 50-plus mile ride to Moab. And when they get to Moab, and they cross over the Jordan River and into Moab, their whole purpose in being in Moab was to sojourn. But one verse later, they remained there. They liked it so well that instead of just sojourning to Florida, they moved to Florida. They're staying there now. They're remaining there. This is where the comforts are causing the compromise. Their position in Israel and the bad conditions in Israel would drive them not only to be sojourners in the land, but now they remain in the land. What started out as, let's just go put our feet in the water of the Jordan, turned into, let's live in Moab. Let's live over here. Elimelech, no doubt, had seen, as I said earlier, had seen the fertile fields and the green lush fields on the other side of the Jordan River from Bethlehem. He could see that far. He could recognize that as he's surrounded by the parched brown grasses, he could recognize that just on the other side of the Dead Sea was plenty. And he may have thought to himself, I'll I'll only go for a short while. Just enough time to drive my flocks over there to be fed, to be satisfied. God's not going to mind. Our fight from his land, or rather our flight from his land and his people will be over before you know it. We'll be right back here in our land. Isn't that how compromise begins to start? Well, no one's watching. So I I can do this, or I can read that, or I can observe this. No one's paying any attention. And then pretty soon, well, I kind of like that, and so I'm going to build some protection so I can continue to do that, and nobody really notice. And then pretty soon, you're dwelling there. What started out as maybe even an innocent sojourning has led into a living in a rebellious condition. That's what happens to Elimelech. Let me highlight for you again. I've alluded to it. I've spoken to it. Let me highlight it again because it's important to these first five verses. In verse 1, he was in Bethlehem and Judah. He sojourned into the country of Moab. Verse 2, he not only sojourned, but then when they went into the country of Moab, they remained there. And going all the way down to verse 4, the very end of verse 4, they lived there about 10 years. Years And honestly, the only one who was in Israel to return to Israel after 10 years was Naomi. So it should say, Naomi lived there for 10 years. Because her sons have died, her husband has died in this land. It's on the outside. 
we're going to spend the rest of our time. We see that comforts cause compromise, and we could spend time here, but I want us to spend more of our time looking at rebellion's consequences. Rebellion's consequences. There are consequences to disobedience. This is, this is directly to the question that was posed to me last week. What do you say to somebody who is sticking their head all the way through the fence to try to nibble at the grass that's greener, apparently, on the other side. Something that I didn't say about that horse is when you got up close to the horse, you begin to notice scratch marks on its neck. And then as you looked a little closer, you saw notches out of its ears because it had gotten caught on the barbed wire that it had stuck its head through. It bore the scars, literally, of trying to get that little bit of grass on the other side of the fence. There was nothing wrong in the grass that was inside the fence. In fact, it looked more lush than the grass outside of the fence, but the horse wanted what was outside of the fence. And those sheep, once they got through the gate, or once they knocked over the fence, rather, and formed a gate, they would scatter all over the place. They'd get tangled up in briars they'd get tangled up in mud as i've shared in illustrations before you look at them crossways they'd fall over dead sheep are not brilliant animals and it was not greener on the other side in fact they would lose weight they would often lose lambs on the other side there was dangers outside but they thought that they needed the grass that was on the other side of the fence we do the same, and there's a reason why we are likened to sheep. We're not very brilliant. We're not as brilliant as we think we are. There are consequences to disobedience. It is fascinating to me. Read verse 3 with me. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. All this buildup. So far in the text, we've had... Two verses of build-up, of storm clouds, intrigue that's already beginning to develop. And it says this, Elimelech dies. That's it. doesn't say how. There's no coroner's report. There's no autopsy. There's no explanation. Just an obituary that shows up in Bethlehem Times. Sent from the land of Moab, Elimelech died in the land of Moab. That's it. That's it. And as we continue on, in verse 5, it says, And both Milan and Shalon died. Another obituary sent to the Bethlehem Times. Milan dies Milan, son of Elimelech, and Naomi dies in Moab. Shalon, son of Elimelech, and Naomi dies in Moab. There's, again, no major report. Nothing to tell us. Many Jewish scholars and Old Testament commentators reading between the lines conclude that the deaths of Naomi's husband and sons were divine judgment against their acts of unbelief. Maybe. But the text doesn't even tell us that much. We might want to see it there. 
because it might prove our point a little more clearer. But I think we're going to see that in Naomi later on, where Naomi is going to make it clear that whatever happened, she becomes embittered against the Lord. Whatever contributed to the death, they were certainly not timely deaths. It was not an old age death because Naomi becomes embittered at what has taken place. Regardless of how they died, or if this was a judgment of God upon them, don't miss the fact that the sons of Elimelech disobeyed God by not returning their father's body for burial. They leave Elimelech in Moab. They should have, at the death of Elimelech, taken the body of Elimelech and brought him back to Bethlehem and buried him with his fathers. Should have brought him back. But they do not. He dies, and he's in the land of Moab. And then the two sons die in the land of Moab. Elimelech, who had fled the judgment of God in Bethlehem, did so only to die in Moab less than ten years later. And it looks like, from the text, that it's only a couple years later. It's not close to the ten. It's only a few years later. The family would stay in Moab for ten years So it might have been tempting to view the move ultimately as as a success. And we would do that, wouldn't we? We may be compromising, and in our compromising position, we say, well, I've been able to do this for 10 years. God hasn't corrected me for 10 years. And look, our flocks are fat. There's grass. The Midianites haven't bothered us for 10 years. We must be in the will of God and we deceive ourselves into believing that we're following after the will of God. But he should have, there should have been a response out of Elimelech that was very different than moving to Moab. He should have remained in Bethlehem. He should have remained in the the land where his fathers had died. And he should have helped turn his people to the things of the Lord. He certainly knew of the famine and he certainly knew where to go to flee the famine. And as we know through the book of Judges, he likely knew what, it was, ne- what was necessary to remove the judgment of God. Because you and I have seen the cyclical evidence, and by the time of Gideon, we know that there was a well-established, the people of Israel obey and God blesses them, the people of Israel disobey and God judges them. And we follow this, or we follow this roller coaster ride up and down all the way through the book of Judges. And by the time we get to chapter six, it's already happened multiple times. This isn't new to Elimelech. But instead of engaging and leading his people back to the things of the Lord, he instead opts for the comforts of the greener grass, or the perceived greener grass. And doing so was in was going to lead to a direct violation of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 says that no Ammonite or Moabite shall gain access to the assembly of God. And what did his sons do? It's likely that Elimelech had a hand in choosing his, his son's wives. If he had any influence in doing so, he would be choosing, knowing that he was going to Moab anyway, should have given him the heads up that his sons would probably marry Moabite women and therefore disqualify themselves from participating in the assembly of God. But 
In Elimelech's mind, that was fine because the comforts and security of Moab were greater than the comforts and security of the assembly of God. You see where compromise has led Elimelech? His name meaning God is my king. Elimelech fails to fulfill that God is his king. Ten years, ten years go by after arriving in the land of Moab, and the sons of Elimelech have failed to thrive in the land. We know that they failed to thrive in the land because there is no heir, and there is nothing left for Naomi. And as we will look in a little, another few verses at the next portion of the chapter, we're going to see that she's going to return from Moab, she's going to return back to Bethlehem, and her head is going to be bitter against the Lord and downtrodden. Ten years of living in the land of Moab have lulled this family into a sense of false security and false comfort. Now separated from the assembly of God, outside of the promises of God, and outside of the promises of God that have been made to Israel, Naomi has lost her sons. And she has two Moabite young women who remain with her only as burdens. With no heir to take over Elimelech's property and nothing left in Moab. Talk about storm clouds. We're only five verses in. We've been introduced to six characters and suddenly three of them have died. We're only five verses in. There's only about eight characters, eight main characters in the book. And really, there's seven main characters and one no-name character that pops up for just a little while and then disappears himself. So out of the seven main characters in the book, we've been introduced to six of them in the first five verses, and three of them have died. This is a low-production cast. <laughs> but they've died because they're teaching us a lesson, or we can learn from their lessons. That's not why they died, but we could certainly learn from it. Let us learn the lessons from Elimelech. The grass is not always greener on the other side. It's not always better. In fact, the grass can turn into a swamp real quick. It can become dangerous real quick. Greener grass is often quicksand in disguise. But that doesn't mean that it immediately felt like quicksand. So what do we tell somebody who is venturing into sin and they say, well, I'm allowed, I've been able to go into sin for quite a while and you know what? I feel better about it. I feel like the grass is greener over here. What do we tell them? The story of Elimelech is a good place to start. When you begin to venture away, follow after the things of the world, you become lulled, dulled in senses to what's really happening. And it is as if it is an anesthetic or a salve over the pain that you're really experiencing, but you've masked. For just a moment, I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to end here. 
Because there's another individual who does this, and his name is all but lost in eternity, but he is mentioned briefly. The very end of chapter 11, and I want you to start in verse 31 with me. It says, uh, well, yeah, we'll start in 31. The scripture says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Without necessarily a show of hands, how many of you were taught that it was Abraham who was called out of Ur? He was, but it was Terah who was called first. Terah was called first out of the land of Ur to go to the land of Cana, or rather Canaan. And when he started on the sojourn to get there, he rises up, if you know where Ur is, it's in some, around the modern-day Kuwait, and they travel up the Fertile Crescent, and at the very top of the Fertile Crescent is a town called, or a city called, Haran. Haran was the Las Vegas of its day. What happened in Haran stayed in Haran. That could have been its motto. It was filled with idolatry, prostitution, and all kinds and all sorts of evil wickedness. And Terah takes Abram and Sarai and Lot, and he goes to the city that's named, whether it was his son's city or not, it was named after one of his sons, Haran. And he arrives in Haran, and in arriving at Haran, his destination was the land of promise. But he stayed in the land of pleasure. Notice the text continues. And Abraham, verse 9, oh, excuse me, back to uh, chapter 11, verse 20, or 32. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Terah was called to go to the land of Canaan. And he stops in Haran. And he dies there at 205 years old. The next verse, verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go up from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Scripture says that Abram was called out of Ur, but Scripture also says that Abram was already in Haran when he received the call to go to Canaan. So Terah was the one that was supposed to go. Terah stops in Haran. He enjoys the pleasures of Haran. And it's actually interesting, if we don't have time tonight, but if you were to do the math, Abram leaves Terah before Terah dies by about 100 years. So Abraham's already in the land of Canaan, already in the promised land, already receiving the blessings, while Terah is in the land of Haran. So what do we say to the person who says, but I'm doing what I want to do and I feel good about it? The stories, the events of Terah, 
And the events that Elimelech lived are evidence that by doing what you want to do, you devoid yourself of any of the blessings that God wants to give to you. That is a scary place to be. That is not a good place to be. And while your sensual flesh may be indulged, the blessings that your heart craves for are absent. The grass is not greener on the other side. If, in fact, Elimelech's move was successful, you would have had 10 years of opportunity to build up more wealth. You would have had a place to live that would last longer than the 10 years. We understand that Elimelech could have subtly lulled himself into this sense. Well, I've been here all this time. My sons, they're about to get married. We have a place to live. No alarm bells were ringing. And the covenant of the promises of land, seed, and blessing, and all the words of the prophets would slip out of Elimelech's mind and, he, and his heart until to him they mattered no more. But those are the ones he should have held on to. Those are the ones he should have held. They were now in Moab to stay. But their journey there would only last ten years. One author writes this, he says, Pursuing greener grass has a way of lulling our spirit to sleep. That which seems like a temporary compromise is seen as no big deal. But if Elimelech could stand here today and reflect back on his subtle compromise, I imagine he would have said, stay in Bethlehem. Stay in the land of promise. Proclaim my name that God is the king. Don't let my sons marry Moabite women, even though the Lord is going to use that to accomplish his purposes. And here's our second lesson that we say in the closing one, that we say to those who say, well, what is God going to do? I can live the way that I want to live. I enjoy the sin that I'm in, and, and I don't even think it's sin, frankly. Just because God is going to use crisis and sin does not mean that it's going to be pleasurable for you. God is going to use Ruth to accomplish great things. But that was not because of Shalon doing a great job choosing a wife. That was because God would choose Ruth. And it was in spite of Shalon's actions and Elimelech's actions that God would use his grace and mercy to become evident through the life of Ruth and Boaz. And it begins to reveal to us how great God loves us. Let that be the message that we share to those who don't know Christ as Savior. Let's close this evening in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the first five verses of the book of Ruth. We... We'll certainly have time where we speed up and slow down in this book, but we are thankful for this background information, this example of Elimelech, Milan, and Shalon. 
this example of their disobedience. And we've only scratched the surface of how disobedient they really were, but how subtly they had convinced themselves, deceiving themselves, that there was greener grass on the other side of the fence. Lord, this is a subtle trap. We know it well. We pray that we would be those who identify it early, that we will not be those who are willing to forget the promises that have been made or forget the calling that we have been called to. It is easy in our culture where creature comforts are a given. They are expected and demanded. And we often forget what it is to be a follower faithful to you. Pray that we would learn this well. That we would be able to instruct others who believe that they can wander away at no consequence. May we be faithful in being iron sharpening iron and drawing them back to you. That they would see the error of those ways before the chastening will come. But Lord, we pray that before it is too late that they indeed would be chastened and returned to you. We thank you for the book of Ruth and the lessons we will learn now in the days coming ahead should Christ tarry. We long to learn them, we look deeply into them, and we desire to give you the glory and honor for it. Now help us to practice them by your Spirit as we depart from here this week, that your name would be glorified in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray it. Amen.